Hello, I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a conversation featuring fresh voices and diverse perspectives on culture, community, business, and more. My guest today is Patricia Kearns, President and CEO of QLI, a post-hospital rehabilitation center for individuals with brain and spinal cord injuries. Support for this show comes from the Greater Omaha Chamber of Commerce. We don't coast, we accomplish more together. Details at omahachamber.org. Patricia Kearns is the President and CEO of QLI, a nationally recognized post-hospital rehabilitation center for individuals with brain and spinal cord injuries. Patricia, a physical therapist by training, joined the clinical team at QLI in 2001, becoming President and CEO in 2011. Patricia oversees a continuum of services that includes 215 private rooms across five levels of care, 400 employees, and $100 million worth of facilities on a 65-acre campus in Omaha, Nebraska. Patricia and QLI's talented team have recreated the way rehabilitation is delivered to individuals with neurologic injury. Additionally, QLI has been recognized as a best place to work in Omaha seven times and the best place to work for the advancement of women. Avid listeners to this show will recall that on June 14th, 2017, we broadcast a conversation with Joey Beerman and John Schutz, both served by QLI. You can listen back to the podcast of that show to hear them talk about their traumatic spine injuries, life before and after being wheelchair-bound, and their courage, resilience, humor, and wisdom. Patricia, welcome to the show. Hi, Stuart. Thanks so much for having me. I want you to start, of course, by talking about QLI. And before we talk about the campus and facilities, I want you to talk about the people that come here. So I wonder if you might talk a little bit about uh, the clients and patients that you work with and the kinds of injuries that they arrive with. Absolutely. Well, you had a chance to meet a couple of individuals, as you, you referenced uh, in the introduction, who have had uh, traumatic injuries, life-changing, devastating injuries. You know, in a, in a second, you know, they were walking, working, providing for their family, you know, on all accounts, living a, a quote-unquote normal life. And then tragedy happens, whether that's a car accident, a fall, uh, diving into a shallow pool of water, uh, whatever the unfortunate circumstances may be. And uh, in an instant, all of that is taken away because of the brain trauma or spinal cord trauma that they experience. Um, we are fortunate to have an opportunity to serve individuals, not only from Omaha and Nebraska, but to serve individuals from all across the country, individuals who come from different walks of life, very different uh, experiences, uh, and everybody's injury is a little bit different. But the one thing that we consistently find is the same is the incredible resilience of the individuals that we're serving uh, and their families as well. So you mentioned a little bit the physical implications of these, these traumas. I'm wondering about the emotional and the psychological aspects that um, patients and clients and, and what's the language patients clients what? clients clients yeah. thank you yeah patients um, is very passive you know at the point that people come to receive services here they're really actively engaged in getting back to life so okay clients, yeah thank you so the clients then that come I'm, I'm curious about that emotional and psychological aspect of the care that they need and the you know the trauma that they're bringing in with them mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and I, you know, I think until um, any one of us, you know, finds ourselves in the shoes of of what any of our clients has experienced, it's it's impossible to truly know. But I can definitely tell you from my twenty years of experience here that. Uh, the emotional toll that that going through the physical changes or maybe the cognitive changes as well if if someone suffered brain trauma uh, is is quite devastating and you know whether that can lead to an amount of depression over what someone's lost or anxiety uh, around what does my future look like Um, and those feelings um, those emotions uh, not only impacting the individual that was injured Uh, But thinking about their entire family unit, you know, if we're serving uh, a young person in their their late teens or early 20s and uh, the emotional toll that that will take on their their parents or siblings or whoever else is involved in their life uh, for individuals that are parents um, and providers of their household, the emotional toll it takes on on them and their family as they're trying to figure out how do they um, move forward with life in a, a very different way. And, you know, one of the things that's so special about QLI, I don't, you know, I'm a physical therapist by background. This is not the kind of training you necessarily get or can get when you're, you're going through your, your educational program. But um, one of the special things about QLI is how we provide this optimistic, almost Disney World-like environment around the individuals and the families that we're serving and not to gloss over the tragedy that's happened and, and the devastating changes that, uh, that our individuals and families are experiencing, but to make sure that we're surrounding everyone with a really good sense of optimism for the future. Um, the idea that there is a path forward, it may or may not look the same as the path that you know that individual was on before, but there is still hope for a meaningful, positive path forward and our team takes that responsibility the responsibility of creating an optimistic hopeful environment that really leans in to the idea and understanding of neuroplasticity the idea you know that your body can adapt that your neurological system can adapt it can change um, and recovery uh, to at least some extent, really, really can happen. And so our team takes that responsibility of providing hope and optimism very seriously. And it's part of what makes our jobs amazing, right? We, we look forward to being on campus, to being at work, because that hope and optimism we're creating for the clients we serve, we benefit from that too. What is the whole person on day one that you typically encounter and then maybe we can sort of talk about what is that journey of both physical and emotional rehabilitation that, that happens with them before they before they um, leave you here. Well, you know, I think one of the things that's important is that, you know, a number of the individuals that are coming to us with a spinal cord injury or post-stroke or brain injury may be wheelchair-bound when they come to us. And um, as an example, walking uh, may not be something that's going to be achieved in the near future, um, you know, it's possible that it might not be achieved in their lifetime. But it's not for us, our team at QLI, to take that hope away. Um, and so we're bringing in an individual who is, and, and everybody's different with where their mindset is. Um, you know, certainly uh, it's been devastating what they've experienced. 
Some people are very depressed or very anxious. Um, Some people have the emotional uh, toolkit to have initiated a level of optimism by the time they arrived at our, you know, doorstep. Um, But everybody's in a different spot. And so our team spends a lot of time digging in to get to know the individual that we're serving. Who are they? What drove them to get out of bed in the morning before their injury? Uh, How did their uh, family unit or support system, whatever that looked like, fit into that? Um, were they emotionally pretty healthy before their injury or, or were there things in their life that, that already impacted them before they had this experience? And, and so we spend a lot of time relationship building and seeking understanding of the individuals and the families that we're serving so that we can come up uh, with a strategy. Uh, who are the right team members to be involved and how do we meet this individual where they're at and bring them along on a path that is not our path for them, but helping them discover their path for themselves uh, moving forward. And I think one of the exciting things about the world of uh, brain injury and spinal cord injury rehab is the way that technology is advancing. So when I finished physical therapy school 20 years ago, I was trained very much under a compensatory model, you know, that a limited amount of recovery can happen. And so my job as a therapist is to implement tools that will help an individual compensate for their deficits. You know, again, when I was trained, the idea that my brain or my spinal cord was damaged and that nothing could change, that damage is done, there's no more adaptability of that system. So if I'm wheelchair bound, I'm always going to be wheelchair bound. Uh, if I have, you know, one leg and one arm that are severely uh, impacted, I can't move them, I may always need a walker to walk. Um, so tools like that to compensate for that motor loss, that loss of function um, in order to access my world. But we know now that that's not exactly true, that, you know, with the right demands in place and the right amount of repetition making sure that we're engaging in contextual and motivating activities that our nervous system can respond and adapt in a way um, that more recovery is possible than we ever thought. You know, so that's where we're at now. But looking ahead to the future, um, there's so much exciting research being done, so much exciting technology development being done that, you know, what what still may not be possible for somebody today who's wheelchair-bound, um, or impaired in a way from their injury that they can't access their world like they used to. Uh, there's so many exciting developments happening that might, that might be different in the future. And so we've learned that we are not necessarily responsible for teaching acceptance of someone's injury or where their deficits are. You know, we certainly want the individuals we serve to overcome a debilitating level of depression or anxiety because we want them to re-engage in life, re-engage with their family, with their support systems in their community. We want them to be able to move forward, uh, not just to sit back and wait for those things to happen. Um, But we're not in a position to say, this can never happen again. So um, again, our goal is to create a really high level of realistic but still a really high level of hope and optimism for the future. Silvery sky When I arrive You blush Golden 
shower the trees hiding beneath I can barely see you how do you let go how do you painting a little bit of a picture of the clients that you work with here, but you've been here for two decades. I wonder if you might paint a picture of what was QLI like uh, when you first joined? QLI had an incredibly visionary founding CEO, Dr. Kim Hogeveen, and a visionary group of leaders and uh, a board of directors that built this campus, the campus opened in 1990, uh, but built this campus with a terrific vision for, for QLI's future. So the campus when I started, and I remember my first visit to campus, uh, it, it felt like, not like a facility, it felt like a college campus, a vibrant college campus where people, I'll say young people, people of all ages, we're learning and growing and recovering and re-engaging in life. And, you know, the, the facilities have always been well-designed and well-kept. We have the most amazing facilities team. Everything looked spectacular the first time I walked onto campus and, and every time since. Uh, but with that, there was this energy that it really does feel like walking onto a college campus and, and the motivation and the excitement that, that comes with that. You know, in addition to a, a great vision, our founding CEO, Dr. Hogeveen, and, and that founding leadership team also really understood the importance of empowering team members to not only take care of the campus as if it was their own, but to continue to dream about what do we want? Uh, what do we wish we had? How do we keep expanding this, changing this, growing this campus so that we can continue to meet the needs of the individuals and families that we're serving in a really big way. And so I, I walked into QLI 20 years ago with this amazing campus, um, but also with a leadership team that really empowered me and all of our team members to say, but what else could we do? What else could this be? And so, yeah, the campus, at, you know, every year, every few years continues to change. Uh, sometimes it, it there's growth with that. There's the addition of more rooms or more uh, unique therapy spaces. As technology is advanced, as an example, we have a really fantastic center for physical rehabilitation with all of our advanced technology, robotics, and body weight support systems. We have built out our adaptive sports program in a really significant way. And so the spaces and the equipment that we've added on to carry out that program um, we've made big changes and we continue to make small changes along the way. Um, we've added family housing. Suzanne's got family housing at QLI as we continue to serve people from further and further away. So the campus has continued to grow um, and expand in that way. 
we're also constantly making updates and changes and improvements to make sure um, not only that, that we can carry out a, a rehab program to the very best of our ability, um, but we're also really mindful when, when people leave the hospital after their traumatic injury, they really want to go home. They don't want to come to another place. And so we're mindful that when those individuals and their families step foot on our campus for the first time, we need to make sure that we're leaving a first impression that creates, you know, at a minimum, safety. I feel safe coming here. Uh, but more importantly than that, I feel I feel hope. I feel maybe excitement that I'm I'm coming to a place um, that really has their act together, um, and I believe that that they can help me take this next step in my recovery. We want this to feel like a uh, a really beautiful, uh, well kept, vibrant uh, community, and and community in the sense of the buildings and the grounds that we have, but community also in the sense of how we come together as individuals to support each other and to create an environment in which everybody can thrive. And, and again, that's not just our residents and our families, but we want to make sure our team members show up every day and have a chance to, to thrive in our community as well. So there's this sense that you can live here and feel as if you're just part of an ordinary world and still encounter this rehabilitation journey and I think you describe it as a tri-dimensional rehabilitation that incorporates really cutting-edge technologies and uh, clinical and um, psychological approaches to rehabilitation. Um, what are these sort of rehabilitation practices that make up something like tri-dimensional rehabilitation? When you come on campus, you don't see anybody in scrubs or with name tags or nobody has a stethoscope hanging around their neck. Uh, so, so you walk onto campus and you just feel like you're you're here with your friends, with your your peers, and and again part of this community. But uh, when you dig in a little bit deeper, um, you'll find that our team members and their expertise uh, is really significant. So uh, you referenced our tridimensional rehab model, the, the model under which our, our clinical program is, is executed. Uh, the dimension one component of that is our incredible, incredible nursing team and uh, our on-site providers who are making sure that the individuals who come to us who still have a lot of medical needs, a lot of medical complications, continue to get well their medical needs are addressed in a way not only that that they continue to get to a point of stability, but really so that as they look towards going home, they know how to manage those medical needs themselves. And again, I can't speak highly enough about our our nursing team um, with regard to to owning and operating the Dimension 1 of that, that clinical model. Uh, the dimension two part of that model is the the recovery aspect, whether that's physical um, or cognitive recovery, and our, our physical and occupational speech therapy, vocational um, rehab, adaptive sports teams um, all play, our nursing team as well, all play a really important part of making sure that um, from an expertise standpoint, we understand the science of learning and neuroplasticity, and that we're employing all of the components of those processes to, to really, in a short amount of time, maximize somebody's uh, potential and recovery while they're with us. And then the third component of our, of our model of tridimensional rehab, really the crown jewel of the program, is our Life Path Services program. And we have an amazing Life Path Services team, but everybody on our team, no matter what your position is, um, understands that this is all part of our responsibility. The idea 
that we are helping people ultimately get back on a path in life that's meaningful to them. And so it's never a focus of just taking my meds or just learning to walk or talk again. All of those things have to drive up to a purpose. What's really going to motivate me to get out of bed in the morning? Is that being a parent? Is that uh, getting back to work and providing for my household? Is that re-engaging with my, my social support system? Uh, whatever that is, how do we take all of the things from dimension one and dimension two and make sure that they're really driven by dimension three, by our Life Path Services program? Somehow you turn around and everything feels upside down. Look back and say to me, I don't know what I've been missing. Oh, the same place, the same things look different somehow. You are a physical therapist as a professional vocation when you enter QLI, but 10 years ago, you transitioned that role to become president and CEO. So what was the motivation behind that transition? Well, I, I don't know that there was a motivation for me to leave clinical practice to, you know, to take on an executive role um, other than I, oh, I have so much love for this company and for this community. And when our founding CEO, Dr. Hogeveen, decided to, to take on a new endeavor to, to build out a leadership training company and step away from QLI and approached me about taking on the role, uh, first of all, I don't think I ever said no to anything he asked me to do. Maybe that's part of my, my path of growth, say yes to everything. But even though it was uh, a little terrifying to transition out of something, you know, clinical and operational that was very comfortable for me and I was very passionate about to, to push myself to grow and to learn and to develop some new skill sets was exciting for me. But to do that for the purpose of continuing to, to move QLI forward to the, to the future was, uh, was really, it's been an incredible opportunity. Um, we've talked before, I'm so, I am passionate about this team and about this mission and about all of the people we serve and all of the people um, in our community. And so I really think even in this role um, as CEO, I get the best of all worlds. I still get to engage with the people we're serving and uh, keep my fingertips. They don't let me participate too much, but keep my fingertips in the clinical program and in the service side of things. But um, having the opportunity to, to fundraise for QLI, to continue to dream for the the company and, and make some projects happen. We're building smart apartments on campus right now, which we're really excited about. So it's fun to be able to to move that initiative forward. Um, yeah, it's exciting. It's an opportunity I'm glad I didn't say no to. I mean, you're a decade into proving this, not that you have to prove it to anybody, but um, I know you're keenly aware of the responsibilities that you have as a leader. Your track record demonstrates all the talent and acumen and the passion that you needed. But at that time, did you think, oh, I'm moving from this clinical side to you know, lead an executive team. Um, what was in your mind at that time that made you think, yes, I'm ready for this? Or, oh, boy, these are some of the things that I don't feel ready for at this stage. So keeping in mind 
that our founding CEO, Dr. Hogeveen, was a brilliant leader, is a brilliant leader, uh, and an incredible human being. And, and he, he had the vision to build not only a clinical model, but uh, to create a culture um, that has set QLI on this path for success. And so my mindset uh, when I was offered this opportunity was, oh, wow, I hope I don't screw this up. <laughs> I don't know that I had a lot of confidence coming in. And, you know, Kim at the time persuaded me. He said, oh, gosh, you you know, you're running a big chunk of QLI's operations. And in this role, you're going to know 80% of what you're doing. You have 20% to learn. And and so I believed him and uh, said yes to the role. And in really a short amount of time, I realized that that was not the case at all. In fact, I really only knew 20% of what I was doing and had 80% uh, to learn. And uh, it was too late to turn back at that time. <laughs> I had already uh, taken on the role. And again, I have a high level of accountability to, to this team and to the people we serve. So um, so the first three years were, were really overwhelming from a learning standpoint, You know, just not really realizing what I was getting into. And I, you know, I look back at those first three years and how much I tried to do on my own without asking for help. And uh, even though I was surrounded by all of these amazing resources, I had wonderful leaders in the community on our board and and otherwise uh, a lot of female leaders in particular that that very kindly reached out to me uh, to offer support. But but during those first three years, I'm not sure I was wise enough to say, yeah, I need to step back and ask for help in some places. So about three years in, I, I hit my point that I said, okay, I, you know, in order to move forward, I, I know about learning and I know about neuroplasticity and I need to take those principles and apply them to myself. Um, I, I need some support and coaching. Um, I need some repetition of some things. I need to step back and prioritize uh, what things I'm going to, to really focus on now from my own growth. And I did that. And, and you know, when I was willing to step back and say, hey, I need some help and I need some coaching and mentoring and support and do all the things that we ask our team members to do from a learning and growth standpoint, uh, when I was willing to take that on, um, yeah, I mean, my growth happened and um, I look back at all the things I've learned and I'm, I, I'm a different person today, 10 years into this role than I was before and the skill sets I have now that I didn't have then, I really, um, I'm really grateful for that. What are these aspects of you that make you a different person? You know, what have you learned along the way, and and um, you know, what surprised you, and how are you different? Yeah, you know, it, when when you're leading people and uh, leading people to carry out jobs that are particularly complex, uh, there are a number of skill sets that you have to learn. Patience is probably one of them early on. Um, skill sets around really seeking an understanding of the people that you're serving. How do you manage your biases? How do you really be a good active listener? How do you take time to understand your people and then to meet them where they're at and to help them move forward? That doesn't boil down to, you know, really just one skill set. But leading people is not just a process of using power to make decisions and to dictate what's going to happen. It's not how we operate at QLI. We, we work under a very collaborative system that, that we want to, to bring our IQ points together. We want to engage in healthy intellectual conflict to push each other and make sure that we're coming out with the very best decision or the very best idea or the very best path forward. And so that, that process of... of 
learning about people, figuring out how to elevate people, how to bring the best out in them, uh, how to help people realize their dreams and their potential. Um, there's a number of skill sets that go into that. And I can tell you when I started this role, I didn't have those. And um, and I'm definitely far from perfect at those now. But um, but I do think I have a better understanding of, of how to engage in that process. We're not a small company either. And so, you know, I think one of the, the big growth areas for me was making sure that as I moved from a, an internal operational role to a role that really required me to understand uh, what's happening with the Medicaid budget and what's happening at the state of Nebraska. Uh, we're a nonprofit organization. We're fundraising. You know, how do I understand our community and what's happening with all the other nonprofits in our community and, uh, and what the needs are of the community and what role, you know, how we fit into that. So understanding externally what's happening in our world and how those things are going to impact our company. Some of those things, if you pay attention, you can kind of predict what's going to happen uh, with the labor market and what's happening at uh, DHHS. Um, Some things are going to be unexpected. And so what happens when something that's completely out of your control happens um, and has a really negative impact on your organization? You know, how do you um, how do you emotionally respond? How do you rally your team? How do you put the resources together to, to respond? What are those things that are, when you wake up in the morning, they seem so aspirational that you sort of leap out of bed for? I, I referenced technology advancements. And our team last March, you know, right before the pandemic hit, had started spending some time. We were coming up on our 30th anniversary as an organization. And we decided it was a really good time to say, gosh, if we look back 30 years at, at where we started and where we've come, and then we look ahead 30 years to 2050 and start thinking about how will technology change the way that healthcare is delivered broadly? And then how will that change our niche in the healthcare market? What are the possibilities? And if we love our campus and and how amazingly well it serves us right now, but if we really start from a blank slate and think out 30 years um, and re-envision not just services, but our facilities and the tools we have and how we go about uh, serving people nationwide, not just here in Omaha, uh, let's dream a little bit about that. Let's let's dig a little further in to understand where things uh, in the world of technology are and, and start to put a, a vision together for that. We know things will change, the good and the bad. And so how do we make sure that we're continuing to build a foundation um, that will allow us to take advantage of those opportunities when they're there and to overcome those challenges when they really get to be a big enough burden? And so uh, obviously, our foundation around community and the the social emotional environment that we provide that is so therapeutic for our clients and their families and for our team members and for our volunteers and any, anyone that engages on our campus, uh, that's a solid foundation. So we we don't neglect that. We we pay attention to that. We build on that. We feed that every day. And then looking ahead to, do we have the tools that we need? Do we have the funding that we need? Uh, regenerating revenue or refundraising, what does that look like to make sure that when we need new technology, when we need to build new spaces, that, that we can make that happen? Uh, I mentioned our smart apartments that we're building. So we're, we're moving into a pilot project that came out of that dreaming for, for 2050 and, and what um, services will look like for us here at QLI. 
and decided that we don't have a lot of answers yet. Um, but we do have enough information to say, let's start a pilot project with just a couple of apartments on campus. Uh, let's maximize the technology that exists right now um, in that environment. And let's start building out a new level of care around that, that we can really explore what's going to work uh, to meet the future needs of our clients and, and take advantage of the opportunities to come. Do you think people in Omaha are really aware that QLI exists? I think that's a great question. Uh, Ten years ago, I would say no. Unless you're on our board of directors or you needed our services or you are employed here, no, that people didn't. And we've spent a lot of time and effort over the last 10 years to tell our stories, to, to have a bigger presence in our community, and whether that's media and social media or our team members that are engaged in organizations uh, outside of QLI. I joke sometimes, I say we get so enthralled with our mission that sometimes we keep our head down in our little ditch out here in North Omaha that we forget to pay attention to what's happening around us. And uh, so we've tried to get a lot better at that. And um, you know, from a, a collaboration mindset, not just collaborating as team members internally, uh, we've really recognized the benefit of being better collaborators with other organizations in our community, um, not just on the healthcare side of things, but even on the, the talent development side of things. So we have some incredible programming around uh, building a workforce for healthcare. Our impact program is an example of that, but working with organizations like the Avenue Scholars Foundation or the legacy program out of OPPD, uh, who are doing a fabulous job of reaching out to individuals while they're still in high school, juniors and seniors in high school, and helping them start to develop um, not just the technical skills, but the soft skills that they need to um, engage in a career and, and move forward with that career in a meaningful way. So we've been able to partner with those organizations and um, build a program internally for those individuals who are interested in healthcare and to, to bring them into our system to provide, again, the technical training, the social emotional training, the mentoring components of that, and, and add to what the Legacy and the Avenue Scholars programs are doing. But a, at least a couple of times a month I hear from somebody, oh, wow, I never, I'd never heard of QLI until you know this happened so it's definitely it's definitely something we're still working to overcome the organization here it's one of the best places to work and has been recognized as such regularly also one of the best places for the advancement of women too so i want to talk about both of those things so um i believe that you have a significantly 
reduced amount of turnover. I think it's maybe a third of the industry average. Correct. So what's the secret sauce for that? You know, it's, it's a number of things. And so having grown within the company, I can tell you, I'm keenly aware of what made me fall in love with this place, what kept me here when I've had other job opportunities and, and maybe other opportunities that would pay me more. So I'm keenly aware, and so are all of our leaders aware of what's kept us here and what's special about this place. Why do I look forward to coming to work on a Monday or maybe on a Sunday? And how do we fiercely protect that? So uh, we develop our talent from within. We don't hire externally into leadership positions. And and I think that allows all of our leaders to, to again, have this passion for protecting what we have. Um, you know, we, we're, we have a very clear set of values. Uh, we're very strategic about how we hire individuals. We definitely take a chance on people and see potential in people. So we don't expect people to, to walk in the door um, thankfully, because I didn't walk in the door <laughs> perfect with these with certain skill sets. But uh, so we believe in people, but we are very strategic about how we recruit for people who have the potential to align their values with our organizational values. And I think that's an important uh, piece from the beginning. From there, uh, we work hard to get people's egos tied to the company, not just to our clients or to their team, but really to the company overall. Um, we invest a lot in the growth of our team members, and I, I think this is one of the, the key things. When we lose people we don't want to lose, we usually find out this is the thing that we didn't do very well. And it is making sure that people have an opportunity for growth, for advancement. Certainly some of that's financial related. People want to earn more so they can do the things they want to do, but it's not just about the money. It's about the opportunity to be an expert, to develop expertise, mastery of skills, uh, be good at what you're doing, and to, to take on more responsibilities and, and have a higher level of accountability. And so making sure that we're investing in the growth of our team members is a, a key priority and, and always a, a work in progress for us. Um, the other things are making sure that we're creating an environment, not just where people can grow, but we have camaraderie, that we enjoy the people that we're around, the relationships that we have. So making sure we're creating time and space for that relationship building. And, you know, given the nature of the work we do is it's serious, it's physically demanding, it's emotionally demanding for our team. Uh, we're also very mindful that, that we just need to have fun around here sometimes. Can that be consuming? in the sense of thinking about work-life balance and also thinking about your own self-care. You mentioned sort of the emotional demands of work like this, not least because you're working with people who are facing emotional demands as well as physical ones. I, I'm curious about how you maintain a balance between your life not being QLI, but having a broader perspective on your own well-being too. Right. Yeah, self-care is important for all of us. And, you know, for, for many of our team members, including myself, I have I have a child, a family, a spouse, and um, it's important to make sure that that we are keeping ourselves healthy and and taking times for our, taking time for our family. Um, but work life balance—it's such an interesting thing. You know, I I always feel like that phrase came out of the context that life is good and work is bad, right? So how do we overcome this crappy thing called work and make sure that we're getting enough, you know, life in there to to balance that and I think it's one of the blissful things that I have found at QLI, and I always hope everybody who works here gets to this same point, that uh, my work is part of my life. I, I find joy in the work, and 
you know, sometimes the greatest joy doesn't come from the easy things day to day. It really comes when there is this challenge. And as a team, we come together and we have a victory. We accomplish something and we overcome that challenge. And so sometimes those hard things at work can lead to the best memories, the greatest joy uh, for myself and for our team. And and so I've, I, I did come into QLI thinking 20 years ago, oh, this is just a job. I'll probably be here a year or two and then I will move on to some other job. And it was, it's been, yeah, again, it was a pleasant surprise when I finally figured out that, wow, this is so much more than a job. This actually gets to be a passion or my purpose that I get to come to every day. And I will say, you know, the the last year and a half, even in the midst of a pandemic, some really hard things that we've had to go through, keeping up with regulations and, uh, you know, operating our, our business and our program in a different way. There's still a never a day that goes by that, you know, doesn't end up with something that is that is truly, and I'm not Pollyanna, but that is truly joyful because we accomplished something together. We made something really special happen. And um, and so, yeah, so work is part of my life. Um, so work-life balance in there, uh, yeah. And we, and we all have things that are part of our work that we don't love doing as much as, you know, other things on our plate. Um, so... I hope that answers the question, mm-hmm. but I, I, yeah, I love my work. I, I take time for self-care. There are times that I need to, to sleep or rest or go on vacation, uh, time that I want to spend with my eight-year-old and my husband. Um, and being intentional about those things is really important. Turning to best place for the advancement of women, um, straight up, I'm going to acknowledge I have never asked a male leader the question, so what's it like to be a male leader? And the only reason that I want to open a door to a conversation about being a female leader is because, on the one hand, the organization does have this reputation for advancing women, but also the simple truth of the world at large and, and certainly in our own community is that we seem to hold women back or out of uh, leadership positions. 
and dare I say, have stereotyped perceptions about women and their capacities as leaders. We ask some questions that we wouldn't ask anybody else. Hence this caveat that I'm asking you about this, even while at the same time perpetuating that, you know, this whole trope line of questioning. Because it is, it is silly. Um, that being said, I am curious nonetheless if you would explain what does it mean to be recognized as a best place for the advancement of women? And what does it mean for you personally? What what special opportunities does this bring for you? What's, what particular and unnecessary obligations do you feel that this brings to you? Yeah. Well, if I'm being honest, you know, I, I initially had mixed feelings about uh, receiving that award, the best place to work for the advancement of women. I have been spoiled and probably uh, pretty sheltered in a lot of ways in my 20 years at QLI. We're, we're 80% female uh, amongst our workforce here. And I never remember a time in my growth, thinking about that first decade uh, with Dr. Hokavin, you know, as my, my supervisor, or the leader of the company, I never remember a time that I really even thought about being a female here. That might sound strange, but I was offered leadership opportunities very early because I was willing to work hard and engage and take accountability. Um, I was curious and uh, I just, I never felt like it was a, a competition between me and a male counterpart. And, and again, to be fair, 80% females here, you know, there's an advantage with that. Um, but it, it just, it never felt like there was a barrier to my advancement in the organization because of my gender. You know, I, I think as I took on the role of CEO, I've also had very few experiences outside of QLI that I have felt like gender was a barrier. I'd be lying if I said I never felt some level of discrimination anywhere outside of QLI. You know, certainly um, there are plenty of biases, even if they're, they're not malicious or intentional or known, um, that come into play um, for any of us. So to your question, you know, I, I feel really proud of being part of an organization that offers females equal opportunity to advance into careers as we offer males. Um, we don't discriminate against our males, even though they only make up 20% of our company. I should point that out as well. So um, so I feel really proud to be part of a company. And I think, you know, my perspective on that recognition um, now is I'm, I'm really grateful to ICANN and that team for, for giving us that recognition. And from a recruiting standpoint, especially when I think about our young women, um, who are just entering into healthcare or into our organization, I I want them to have the confidence um, that they can dream bigger for their career. Um, you know, even thinking about my role, I didn't, you know, leave high school and and head into to college thinking I'm going to be the CEO of an organization someday. It was a good part luck. I worked for it too. Don't get me wrong, but you know, that I ended up here. But looking back, I, I wished I would have had the confidence to say, no, I could do something like this. And and so I hope this recognition and the examples of all of the females that we have in leadership positions around QLI provides some level of confidence to, to our young team members to say, yeah, I could do that someday. If Pat can be the CEO, then I can do it too. You know, I think as an organization, the, the growth that we've been going through over the last year and a half is, even if it doesn't seem like you have biases against gender or um, any other social demographic, 
not talking about it is not necessarily the right path forward. We've really started to, to shift our mindset around the topic of bias. And again, not just gender, that's, that's race and, you know, every other social demographic, lots of other skill sets, you know, as well, but started to really shift our mindset to say, you know, these are uncomfortable conversations for us to have with each other to say, I might have a bias, a blind spot that I'm not aware of. Um, You as my team member have biases and blind spots you're not aware of. And instead of just pretending like those don't exist, um, we need to start having these uncomfortable conversations and talking about these things out loud. And we need to be able to, as a team, not only have those uncomfortable conversations, but have intellectual conflict with each other that when I see a bias at play for you, I want to say, hey, I think your decision making may be affected by this and you don't realize it. And I want team members to say that to me too, to say, hey, I think you've got a bias at play and you're not gonna end up making the best decision because of it. And so uh, we are far from perfect, but I think we've been on a good path of growth over the last year and a half at having these conversations about making sure, again, from a collaboration standpoint, that you know, as we are recruiting into the company, as we're promoting within the company, as we're making those decisions, that we're balancing who's in the room um, to make sure that that we're really talking about these things out loud so that we can make the very best decisions and not um, inadvertently discriminate. Your daily life here is surrounded by what I think many people might look at and just see as only the trauma of people's experience. And that is far from the picture that you have painted for us. And so I'm wondering if you've a more general lesson, especially you know after enduring well during a pandemic, some lesson for us about hope and some sort of sense of how we find optimism in in life. You know, I think one of the things that I've learned in my journey here, and it is reiterated uh, with everything that happens here every day, but um, to really lean into the power of believing in people. And whether that is believing in our clients and, gosh, what they can accomplish if they're given the right tools and the right support, believing in our team members, uh, even if our team members come in um, like I did, uh, without all the skill sets, um, without maybe the perspective at times that we need to, to be successful or be a good team member, but if you're willing to really lean into the power of believing in people and their potential, it's amazing how much it can change how you approach a situation. Not only the the emotions you have around it, the positive emotions when you say, yeah, I do think this person has potential, great things could happen here. You know, it creates a level of positivity for yourself but it also shifts how you engage in that situation and how you're able to meet someone where they're at and, and really help elevate them and, and bring them along. And so it may sound cheesy or really simple, but I have discovered in my time here that, yeah, believing in people, um, you'll never go wrong with that. My guest today has been Patricia Kearns. 
President and CEO of QLI, a post-hospital rehabilitation center for individuals with brain and spinal cord injuries. Patricia, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thank you for having me, Stuart. It's been a pleasure. think back 20 years and I'm like oh she was so strange like yeah who who does that who loves their job right this is work who loves their job so much and um and fast forward uh so if I'm sitting at a restaurant I always carry my business cards and if the person serving us is really dynamite my husband gets so embarrassed about this but if uh if they're really dynamite i always make sure i pull out my business card i usually start a conversation so i understand kind of what's going on in their life but he knows it he knows as soon as i say so are you in school or what are you doing or you know is this a part-time job or full-time and uh he always knows it's coming that i eventually end up handing my business card and saying oh you should you should really consider healthcare and come check out qli give me a call and um yeah I, we all do that around here right so from something i thought was so strange I am now that person (laughs) right wow yeah support for this show comes from the greater Omaha Chamber of Commerce we don't coast we accomplish more together Details at omahachamber.org. That's the end of this week's show. You can listen again to this show and others by subscribing to the podcast at livesradioshow.com and find us on social media at livesradioshow. The music playing you in and playing you out each week was created specially for the show by Andrew Bailey. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden, and this is Live's radio show and podcast. Join me next week for fresh voices and diverse perspectives on culture, community, and more. Music